Few coaches have won more football games over the past decade plus than Pete Carroll with the Seahawks, but is he not a top 10 head coach in the National Football League? Nick Lee and I are going to be discussing and debating on our Blue Friday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for Blue Friday by my co-host, Nick Lee, and a special thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you're listening from Little Rock, Arkansas, or Dallas, Texas in Cowboys country, we greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. As we do each and every Blue Friday, we're going to have a little bit of fun with a game of sorts, doing a little bit of rankings on offensive positional groups. Plus, we'll be doing Forecast Friday for Noah Fant and Kobe Bryant, looking back at their 2022 seasons and what's next for them coming up this season for the Seahawks. Jam-packed episode coming your way, so let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on our Blue Friday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Few coaches have been more successful over the past decade plus than Pete Carroll. He's led the Seahawks to the playoffs 12 times since he arrived in 2010, has only missed the postseason twice during that span, and yet it's ranking season. We see lists like this come out. Sometimes that leave us a little bit baffled, but you know, I guess, Nick, the thing to say is normally with these rankings, these lists that come out there, we try not to put too much stock in it. But once in a while, there is a set of top 10 rankings that just irks us. And I think that this is one we've got to discuss because Pete Carroll, especially after what he did last season with Geno Smith as a starting quarterback and 9,000 rookies playing snaps for this football team, for them to make the playoffs, it was arguably the greatest coaching job that he has done his entire football career, not just with the Seahawks. And yet PFFs, Trevor Sikma, who I have talked to a few times. I have a lot of respect for Trevor. I just tend to not agree with his top 10 coaching rankings that came out this year. And Nick, you look at it and there's one really big name that is not in that top 10 and it is Pete Carroll. And that leaves me scratching my bald head because I just don't understand. Yeah, this is this might turn into you know that's a, you know what grinds my gears kind of segment. <laughs> you know what grinds my gears is the consistent, insistent, constant disrespect of what should be a future Hall of Famer in Pete Carroll. I mean, no Coach of the Year award. Um, you know, I, I had to go through the list of Coach of the Year winners. Um, Jason Garrett, Matt Nagy have won this award and not Pete Carroll. Are you bleeping kidding me? And, and of course, that that famous list. He's he's in one of very very few. You you could fit the amount of head coaches who have won a BCS national championship or a college football division one national championship and a Super Bowl into a smart car. It's Barry Switzer, Jimmy Johnson, and, and Pete Carroll. It's three in in NFL in NFL history that have won both a college football division one national championship and a Super Bowl. I mean, that should say enough right there. He and also he, last year. But let's let's talk about you know. What you've done for me lately, which I know this list is a lot of that. <laughs> well, it better be at least um, with some of the names on there. You know, he has the guts to sell high on Russell Wilson when a lot of the fan, but you know, the fan base was pretty split on what to do, but he, he pulled the trigger and it, it, it came out gangbusters for him. Made, made the playoffs. He orchestrated a team that was led by Geno Smith 
to the playoffs in a year that some people had them dead last in their power rankings to start the year. And people were kind of ripping him. Some people were saying they should have fired Pete and kept Russell Wilson. And he's laughing in those faces. Now his philosophy of running the ball, being physical, playing defense, you know, being a bit more on the conservative side, perhaps on offense is constantly broken down, constantly mocked, picked apart by analytics nerds on Twitter. And yet he laughs in the face of all of them. He doesn't give a crap. He just keeps doing it and making playoffs. I should, should they have made a few deeper runs in the past? Yes. But all he does is make playoffs. I mean, with, with rosters and, you know, Sirianni, Sirianni's on that list after one good year. I mean, my, my family's an Eagles, Eagles uh, family. So they'll start throwing stuff at me. If I start going too much into that Shanahan has blown two Super Bowls. And, you know, I'll accept Brian Dable. I think he's a fine coach. He made Daniel Jones look like a franchise competent quarterback, which should be an award of its own right. Um, but he's fourth in, in active among active head coaches in wins, three uh, third in active head coaches in playoff wins, a defensive-minded head coach who created the best defense since the 1985 Bears and the Legion of Boom, and then hired an offensive coordinator and, and created this, this culture to where Geno Smith could thrive Drafted Tariq Wolin last year. I don't think that gets enough credit. And, you know, it, it's almost like he's getting penalized for being too consistent. Like he's not the shiny new toy in the store. He's just always there. He's always been there, always been consistent. And it somehow feels like he's being penalized for that. Yeah, you know, I've kind of joked about this the last couple of years. And at this point, I don't know if it's a joke. You know, you almost got to wonder, does Pete need a season where the Seahawks have a top three pick because they stunk? Not because the Denver Broncos stunk, but because the Seahawks stunk getting a top three pick and then leading them back to glory the next year. Because men, then maybe somebody might be like, oh, you know, that was a hell of a coaching job by Pete Carroll. Let's give him coach of the year. And, you know, it's funny because I asked Quandre Diggs when he was a guest on our show about Pete not being in the top five. And he had some really choice words on that for not even being a finalist for coach of the year last year. When you consider that, as you said, there were a lot of people out there that thought this team was going to be contending for the number one overall pick. They did not think that this was going to be a playoff team. And you and I did not think they were going to be a playoff team. I had them winning seven or eight games. I thought they were going to be serviceable, but I didn't think that they were going to be a postseason team. And for them to do it the way they did with Geno Smith being a Pro Bowl quarterback, like, I know that Pete is a defensive coach, but you look at the track record with quarterbacks that he has going all the way back to college. USC, I know it's a powerhouse, but he'd lose Carson Palmer, and then John David Booty is going to take us to the promised land. Or Matt Leinart, who didn't do anything in the NFL. Matt Leinart was an incredible college quarterback. Tavares Jackson's best year in the NFL was with Pete Carroll. I mean, he just – he gets – that confidence in his quarterbacks. And it might not matter that he is a defensive coach. He finds a way to do it. And that's really what irks me most about this list. I understand wins and losses. That doesn't mean everything when you're looking at who the best coaches are. But Pete Carroll, one of the things that makes him one of the very best coaches is the ability to get that culture and have it permeate within the organization. He's as good as any coach in the NFL, but that's why players want to play in Seattle. That's why when guys are getting asked where they had their best meetings in the pre-draft process. It's typically going to be Pete Carroll that gets name dropped, you know, unless you're Sauce Gardner. That's like the only guy I've ever seen that was not happy with the meeting that he had in a pre-draft visit with Pete Carroll. But my point is still valid. He is just, he's a player's coach that understands what he's doing. And every coach has flaws. Pete's got his flaws. And you said there's a few playoff runs. I felt like they could have gone farther, but 
I'm not going to put too much of that a Pete, especially with what he did last year. And I, I just look at some of these coaches that are on this list. Like I know Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl in Philly, and I know that he had a good year in Jacksonville last year, but he's barely above 500 for his career. How is Pete Carroll not on the list ahead of him? Or Kyle Shanahan, who is barely above 500. I know he's had a couple really good seasons in San Francisco, but they've had some really bad years there when he's been the coach too. And Sean McDermott, I know he's got a good record, but he hasn't gotten to a conference, uh, hasn't won the conference title game, hasn't gotten to a Super Bowl. Four of these coaches have never been to a Super Bowl. So I just look at that list and I just, it, it baffles me. I think Pete belongs in the three to five range where Mike Tomlin and maybe John Harbaugh, coaches like that are at. I can make an argument those couple guys could be ahead of him because of the coaching records, the playoff records, things like that. But for Pete not to be in the top five, let alone the top 10, uh, it's just to me ludicrous. Yeah, you got to, we, we see this all the time. There's that flash in the pan that, you know, have a really good year. You have a solid roster and things just break your way. And that might not be such an indictment on how elite you are of a head coach. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes, you know, you, you have some things in place and then those things go away with turnover. You know, we saw that with the Seahawks when they won the Super Bowl. There was some coaching turnover, some player turnover. And then they kind of fade into the oblivion. And Pete Carroll has not. And you could argue the last 10, 12 years, the Seahawks have been the most consistent NFL franchise outside of New England. And, you know, the Philly Eagles are trying to get there. But I think the Seahawks really are, at least in the NFC, they really are, I think, one of the most consistent NFL organizations. And a lot of that has to do with Pete Carroll. I was going to bring up the point you did is, is that player poll that a year or two ago where, like, what, what, is, the, what is your preferred, you know, dream destination or what's the what's the place people like to play for it was seattle seattle was number one it wasn't these ola hollywood you know miami that's you know new york seattle washington because of pete carroll it's you can't quantify some of these things and i think this list is just focusing a little bit too much on one year of success or some of the flashy you know shiny new toys in the window um when pete carroll has been there year after year after year uh for the for more than a decade. It's just really frustrating. This, this, this list kind of pushed me over the edge, got the tips of my ears really hot on, on just like, where is this respect? And, you know, as long as he gets into Canton, that that's kind of where it all ends for me. As long as he gets there, um, I'll, I'll be happy at the end of the day. But some of the stuff just irks me that the little things of, of disrespect. And after how everything was set up before last year, you said there were a lot of people that were saying Pete should be gone not Russell. Russell should still be under center. Pete Carroll's gone, even though he's won so many games, whatever. It's the power of the Air Monarchs. You cannot deny the power of the Air Monarchs. And Pete, year in, year out, wins. I mean, he had not had a double-digit losing season in forever until that 7-10 and 10 year two years ago. And then to come back, I know the record wasn't that much better, but with all the young players, for them to do what they did, again, I think it is the most impressive coaching job that Pete Carroll has done at any level of football, what he did with that Seahawks squad last year. The future is very bright. I think that this list, at least from that consensus, I think that it shows that Pete is the most underrated coach in the NFL because, as I said, he should be in the top five, let alone not the top ten. Him not being on that list, that just shows you how underappreciated that he is. And I know there's plenty of other people out there that have not had him in their top ten for coaching lists either. And – 
it blows my mind. Anyway, coming up next, we're going to shift gears to Forecast Friday. Noah Fan and Kobe Bryant both were in their first seasons with the Seahawks last year. We're going to revisit their 2022 campaigns and what we expect from the two players going into 2023. You're listening to the Blue Friday edition of Locked On Seahawks. That is brought your way by FanDuel. Take your swing at betting MLB on FanDuel and get 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets up to $200. That's right. Just bet 20 bucks and you only have $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. That's 200 you can spend betting on everything from the money line to the over and under to who you think is going to hit the first home run. It's all on the app that's safe and secure and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. There's no better place to bet on Major League Baseball than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. So sign up today and visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get up to $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. You're listening to the Blue Friday edition of Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined for today's show by my co-host, Nick Lee. And a special thanks, as always, to all the 12s out there. We greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. For every day or coming up on Monday, I'll be rejoined by Rob Rang, and we will be shifting to the receiver position for our training camp preview. That should be a really fun segment looking at arguably the most talented position group on Seattle's roster. Good segue for later on today's show. You won't want to miss it coming up on Monday. Let's get to our forecast Friday. We're going to look at two players today, one on offense and one on defense. And as we've been doing up to this point, Nick, we're going to revisit briefly the players' previous season, 2022, what they accomplished, what went right, what went wrong. And then we'll quickly discuss what we expect for the upcoming season. We're starting offensive side of the football with one of the key pieces that came back in the Russell Wilson trade, and that is former first-round pick tight end, Noah Fant, and statistically, I, I think there's plenty of fans out there that would agree with me. When you look at the statistics, maybe not the numbers you were expecting from Noah Fant last season, and yet I don't think the stats match up with how much of an impact that he really had on this football team, in part because I thought he blocked his butt off most of the season. I was not expecting that from Noah Fant. He came into the league viewed as a glorified receiver, come out of Iowa, ran a 4-5, can catch the ball, but he can't block. He really impressed me last year with the willingness, the mindset, the physicality that he showed that I didn't even see in his film in Denver. That might be the biggest plus for me, but looking back at last season, there were some big plays in the passing game. Maybe the stats didn't show that, but the blocking really made it that he had a much greater impact maybe than his raw statistics show. Yeah, my, one of my favorite movies is Rudy, and and he always hear the coach saying, "I wish I could put your heart in some of my players' bodies. I wish I could have put the heart in uh, of Noah Fant in the Jimmy Graham's body." Because um, really, that that's that that mindset is exactly what the Seahawks needed at tight end. Um, you know, was he a Pro Bowler? No, um, but in, he he had he had some you know, some games where he kind of disappeared. Third on the team with 226 yards created after the catch, which for a tight end I think is is pretty darn good. Um, and he, he did not have that, you know, that prolific passing, you know, receiving season that he didn't break the five. So I, is for, for me with tight ends for, especially in the Seahawks kind of offense, breaking the 500 yard plateau, I think is a big one. He just missed that by basically a first down catch. <laughs> um, he almost got there, tied his career high for touchdowns of four. Um, he, he certainly was a factor. And, and like you said, blocking a presence in the red zone where perhaps he sucked away, you know, um, some part of the defense where another guy was free enough to, to make a touchdown catch. He he strikes me just in his play as more of a selfless player. 
um, that, that isn't necessarily interested in having these 800, 900,000, you know, Travis Kelsey kind of number. I'm sure he'd like them, but um, he, he's, he's not, he's not obsessed with that. It's, it's team first, which is exactly what you want. That's kind of, again, that's kind of the culture that Pete Carroll has built in Seattle with guys like Noah Fant thrive in this kind of environment where, yeah, he's probably as far as stature and, you know, natural ability could be a very, very good tight end in, in a pass happy offense, but he was exactly, I think what the Seahawks needed at tight end. And I'm excited for year two with him in this system because, and especially with some other pieces around him like Jackson Smith and Jigba, um, I actually am expecting a, a bigger year for him statistically. I don't know that I agree with you on that, and it's not because I don't think that Noah Fant is incapable, but you just mentioned the supporting cast, and I've talked about this on a couple shows that I've been a guest on earlier this week. I don't know how the tight ends are going to get very many opportunities with all the playmakers that the Seahawks have because you know that DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett are still going to get a lot of targets, and you know that Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to get a lot of targets from the slot being a totally different style weapon. And oh, by the way, you got two really good running backs that are going to be getting the football as runners and receivers. It's not to say that these tight ends aren't going to have games where they're going to be more of a factor. There are opponents like the 49ers that I feel like the best way you can beat a really good defense like that. They have been susceptible at times to tight ends, but they're going to be games where the tight ends really aren't a factor in that regard. That's not saying they're not important because they're going to have to be able to block to be able to contribute to this football team. I just wonder where the touches are going to come for these guys. And I could see all three tight ends being very productive and having lower numbers in the receptions and receiving yards category and maybe touchdowns just simply because there's only one football to go around. So for me, I know it's crazy saying this because Fant had the lowest yard total that he would had since his rookie year. He had the lowest reception total in his entire career last year in Seattle his yards per catch or after catch were decent, but his yards after catch on average per catch was actually the lowest mark he's had in his career. So the numbers weren't great. And yet I am wondering, can he even get to those numbers this year because of all the other mouths that Geno Smith's going to have to be feeding in this offense? Yeah, we might need a, a loaves and the fishes scenario for, for some of these targets for sure. And you bring up a good point. Yeah. Uh, when I say better statistically, I mean, he, he might, maybe have five or six touchdowns instead of four. Um, I'm not expecting him to have seven, 800 yards receiving because you're right. Um, the presence of Jackson Smith and Jigba and Metcalf and Lockett are going to get theirs. Um, Fant, and, and there's also a world that exists where Fant maybe doesn't meet those same statistical you know, standards, but still is a very valuable piece to this team. And not just the receivers. You're talking about the other tight ends as well. you got Colby Parkinson, Will Disley. Um, the Seahawks might not have that giant star at tight end, um, but uh, they have about as I think deep a tight end room as you'll find in the NFL. As far as when you go to you know tight end two and three back back there, I think a lot of a lot of teams I think would would trade their depth for what the Seahawks have behind Noah Fant. So um, yeah, you're right that the the, the 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 stats might not be there. I, I think that he's going to get a chance to, to shine in the red zone a bit as as well. Um, but either way, like I said. Um, a world exists where he can have a solid season for the Seahawks, but maybe not have these, these crazy good statistics. And I felt like that's how last year was, but 
this is a critical season for him because he's in the final year of his contract. He's now playing on that fifth-year option. It's the only one John Schneider has ever picked up, and it was a player that he didn't draft. He wanted to draft him, but the Broncos picked him a pick before the Seahawks are on the clock. And ironically enough, he ends up in Seattle a few years later as part of the Russell Wilson trade. So we'll see what happens. He's always had the athleticism, and last year he caught almost 80% of his targets. So he's been a reliable receiving threat. And it feels like Shane Waldron maybe is going to have a little better way a little better feel for how to use them. But again, where do the targets come from? Now, on the defensive side of the ball, we've talked about this on several episodes. I don't think it's a given that Kobe Bryant is going to get as many snaps in slot this year because Julian Love is now coming to town. If you've got a healthy Jamal Adams, Julian Love is probably going to be playing a lot in that nickel role. So it may diminish the number of snaps that Kobe Bryant has at the slot position. And yet at the same time, you look at last year, Nick, had his rookie bumps early in the season. He gave up a long touchdown season opener against Denver. He was given up almost an 80% completion rate the first nine games. And then he didn't give up any touchdowns in coverage in the last eight games. And even though the completion percentage was still higher than he liked, much lower yards per reception, he really started to get a better feel, a better comfort for a position that he really, quite frankly, hadn't played. I believe he had 33 snaps in the slot his entire college career at Cincinnati. This was not something that he had done much coming into the NFL. He led all corners with four forced fumbles last year too. So we saw the reincarnation of Charles Peanut Tillman out there in a Seahawks uniform. There was a lot to like, and you feel like he's got a long way to go in terms of reaching his ceiling because this is a position that was so new to him going into last year. Yeah. And, and that kind of just the, the way things broke last year where he's playing a little bit of a different position um, and then he, and he worked at it. You could, I, you could just tell during camp that he was a guy that had that mindset. Like, I, I, I'm a dog. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get what's mine. And I, I'm, I'm not going to back down from competition, even if it's a spot I'm not familiar with. And I'm not going to shy from it. And he's been doing that his whole – he did that his whole college career and did it his rookie year. And if you look at, like, his game-by-game log and pro football focus of the grades, they slowly turn from red to yellow to green as the season – kind of progresses and that's exactly what you want from a rookie. Of course, there's going to be some bumps along the road, but you see those numbers get, you know, the grade, you know, scale get greener and greener as the season goes. And he had one of his better seasons in those last two games against the Jets and the Rams in the regular season. Um, in fact, I think he had one of his, his I think either a second or best, uh, second best or best coverage grade in that Jets game on New Year's day. So um, yeah, again, like you mentioned with Julian Love, I think that that, is very puts his situation pretty murky, but he's also a nice ace in the hole to have if, if things kind of go awry health wise at the safety spot. Slide Julian Love in. Um, he's a solid, solid depth piece at worst. I think he's still just he just strikes me as that guy that he's he's got that I don't know cliched chip on the shoulder, but he's he's got that mentality that he's not going to back down even if Julian Love comes in as a veteran, a proven guy to take a spot. And I think that's going to prove well for him, if not maybe this year, but certainly down the line, I still think that Kobe Bryant is very, very much in the plans of a Pete Carroll defense now and in the future. The thing that I'm maybe most excited about with this kid is he had really good ball production at Cincinnati and that didn't necessarily translate last year. But I think part of it is you're not, you don't have a boundary next to you anymore. You are having to defend both sides and He's not necessarily the quickest guy. His testing times in agility drills 
were pretty poor for a cornerback. So that is still something that makes me wonder a little bit, what's the ceiling look like for him there? And yet at the same time, he's such a high IQ football player and he's got that dog mentality and he's typically had really good ball production. So you're wondering another year being comfortable with that position, really knowing what he's doing. Is he going to be able to get his hands on some interceptions? He only had four pass breakups on 66 targets last year. No interceptions. I feel like this kid's got a lot more upside in that regard. And, oh, by the way, he didn't miss any tackles their last eight regular season games. That was an issue early in the year. By the end of the season, he was one of their best tacklers in the back half of their defense. So there's a lot to like about him. And the numbers that we came up with as far as projections for this year, Nick, Maybe some of the numbers a little lower, like 54 tackles. I just think there's going to be a few, a fewer, a smaller amount of snaps for him just with Julian Love being there. But I also could see the Seahawks playing a lot of dime where you could have Brian and Love on the field together. That seems to be where this defense is trending, where they're really going to maximize on their defensive backs being on the field. And I just think that this kid, even if he's got a diminished role, I expect that we're going to see a little more production on the football, making plays, maybe get an interception or two, and being a bit more efficient, lowering those completion rates, which is always tricky in the slot. But I do feel like this kid has a, a has enough potential here that the second season that we could really see that growth show up in a number of different areas, even if he doesn't play quite as many snaps. There will always be a place on in, in the NFL, but especially on a Pete Carroll team, for a guy who's a willing tackler and doesn't back down from competition. And that is perfectly how you describe Kobe Bryant. So um, even if you might enter camp a little bit of an underdog as far as, you know, getting the lion's share of snaps, don't count him out. And I don't think Pete Carroll has, has either. I think this he's still, like I said, very much in the plans. But there's always a place on, on a defense for a guy of, of Kobe Bryant's mentality and ability. And I agree. Um, I, I think he's going to get even more comfortable and he just seems like a guy that's that's good at adapting, um, as you can see by the numbers game by game as you go throughout last year. So that can only benefit him. So that he'll find a way. He'll find a way to make make some plays this year. I got a feeling. You're listening to the Blue Friday edition of Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined on today's show by my co-host Nick Lee. A special thanks to all the 12s out there, especially in this prime time episode for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it for everydayers. Make sure you're tuning in Monday. Rob Rang and I are going to take a look at the receivers in our latest training camp preview, and we'll continue our 90-man countdown with numbers 35 through 31. You won't want to miss it. The Seahawks are expected to have one of the best offensive teams in the NFL to bring back most of their key contributors from last year. They've added some new weapons to the arsenal, including Jackson Smith and Jigba. And Nick, we love to do this on Blue Friday. We like to either play games or, in this case, since we were debating a ranking, in the first segment of today's show, why not dish out our own rankings? And now that we basically know what Seattle's roster is going to look like, unless there's some earth-shattering move that happens in training camp that I am not foreseeing, we know who the Seahawks' offense is going to be, who's going to be on that offense. So it's time for us to rank our positional groups. And I know our planning for the show that we do have a few differences, but I know one thing. Our first two groups, we have the exact same ones coming in at number one and two. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. I mean, receiver is easily the, the deepest position at, at, on, on this offense and really one of the better receiver rooms around the league. I mean, uh, I feel like if Jackson Smith and Jigba even remotely lives up to his hype as a draft, you know, with his draft stock, that the Seahawks are going to have one of the more exciting trios of NFL receivers in the NFL 
um, you know, pair him with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf with his first round pedigree. I mean, that, that is a dangerous trio. And we just got done talking about Noah Fant, the tight ends. I mean, that's a lot of, like a lot of mouths to feed. Yes. But also a lot of headaches for the defense. Um, so receivers, I think is no question the deepest, uh, you know, most talented ro- uh, position group on offense. And then number two running backs for, for similar reasons, Ken Walker, the third offensive rookie of the year runner up, uh, had a fantastic season. You pair him with a guy who very well could, you know, if with enough touches could at least garner a little bit of rookie of the year buzz as well. Zach Charbonnet, who I think is a fine running back. And also I think complements Ken Walker, the third's abilities as well. So those two could be a, a pretty darn good one, two punch. Um, you know, Pete care likes those, you know, Reggie Bush and, and Lendell white back in the day. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying, I'm not saying it's going to be that prolific, but um, he, he seems to like those guys. And I do think that there's a bit of that kind of factor here. Um, so easily the, the, the top two units have got to be receiver and running back. Yeah, we're in full agreement on that. I, I actually was thinking about running back for number one, but then I was thinking about positional value. And I am not a subscriber to the idea that running backs don't matter. Anybody that listens to the show knows I am 180 degrees away from that. I love running backs. And there's bias there because I played running back and I coached running backs. So, of course, I'm going to consider them for the top. But you, you look at the players they've got there. Charbonnet and Walker and then DJ Dallas I think could start for a number of teams and he's probably going to be your number three maybe your number four running back because Kenny McIntosh is way better than a seventh round pick I had a third round grade on him I love what I saw in his film at, at Georgia the guy can catch the ball like a receiver he is way more physical than you would think at 210 pounds running the football so I just look top to bottom that's as good of a running back group as you are going to find in the entire National Football League but you can maybe make that argument for the receiving group by the end of the year, too, if Jackson Smith and Jigbo lives up to the hype that's being generated right now. Because you already have two bona fide stars in DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. And you have a wild card in there named D. Eskridge. If he stays healthy, he's had a really good offseason. If you can keep him on the field, we know how explosive of an athlete he is. And there's going to be even more opportunities for him to maybe bust free because, oh, now we got to deal with three other dudes. The, the four wide stuff you could do with those four guys. And, oh, by the way, Jarek Young is also still on the roster too. There's so much talent at that group that those two positions, receiver and running back, I think the skill positions, if you combine those two, I don't know there's a team in the league that has a better set of receivers and running backs than what the Seahawks have, at least in terms of upside. Now, you and I took a little bit of a different path with our list after those first two. And I think that's what's going to make this conversation interesting because you had tight ends coming in at number three. I've got quarterback. And in large part, it's because I believe in Geno Smith. And I I don't think last year was a fluke. In fact, I think with the weapons we just talked about, that Geno can be a top five quarterback this year. And I think he can put up even better numbers than he did a year ago. Second season starting in Shane Waldron's offense. There's so many reasons to trend upward, even after the season he had last year. And I've got tight ends coming in behind them at number four, just because even though there's a lot of talent there, you mentioned it, I don't think there's a star in that position group. I think Geno Smith can be a star at quarterback, and it's a position that obviously holds a lot more weight than tight end too. And I just think in this offense, the tight ends aren't going to have as many opportunities with the weapons that they've got. So I like the group. I think there's a good collection of talent there, but I have them at number four, you have the offensive tackles and the tight ends ahead of quarterback. So I'm really interested to hear your rationale behind that. Cause that kind of surprised me a little bit. You know, this is, this is not an indictment on how I feel about Geno Smith. I, G, I think Geno Smith is a fine quarterback. I have full confidence in him 
um, to be an above average quarterback. Now I do. I think he's going to be top five. That might be a little too rich for my blood. Um, this is more me being a believer. I, I didn't quite for these rankings. I didn't quite consider, you know, number of targets, you know, not enough mouths to feed kind of thing for tight ends. I just went sheer depth. And I think the tight end room is one of the better, one of the deeper um, on this team with Noah fan, who I think you it could be a star on, on a more like air raid kind of offense. Um, but he's doing what asked of him um, with, with the Seahawks. Then Will Disley is, is, is piled up some touchdowns. Kobe Parkinson, I still think is going to be a fantastic uh, red zone weapon. Um, so that's more of the depth of that room. And I'm very, very bullish on the on the offensive tackles of two sophomore, you know, coming into their sophomore seasons. Charles Cross turned in his three best games um, in, the, in the second half of the year with the better than 79 passing grade in the last you know five or six weeks, I think it was. Um, three really good passing block games that you could again, like Kobe Bryant, he kind of got more comfortable as as time went on. And then a stellar 84.4 grade against the Bucks in Germany. Abe Lucas, who uh, you know. I was a little bit of had a little bit of questions about just with the type of type of offense he went to, um, but he he had the best game of his entire season in the regular season finale against the Rams. Really looked comfortable uh, at the right tackle position. Really really excited for these two tackles to grow um, in, in their second year. So really, it's more about my excitement for the tackles <laughs> than it is uh, more of an indictment on how I feel about Geno Smith. So I do have the quarterback fifth, but that's that's I that's all, one how I feel how stacked this offense is is. Geno Smith in the quarterback room that far down, but that is not because I don't believe in them. That's just how excited I am about these other positions. And you, if you go down the depth chart, you know, Drew Locke and, and Holt Naylor's, of course, you know, there's, I don't know if there's a depth issue there with, with Drew Locke. I do like him as a backup, um, but the quarterbacks, it's, it's again, it's not that I, that I don't believe in Geno Smith. I do. He can, I still expect him to be an easily an above average quarterback this year, top five. I don't know, but definitely above average, but, I really like these tackles. Yeah, I'm excited about the upside of the tackles. But, you know, I think you and I were kind of thinking along the same lines in a lot of ways. But I was looking at positional value. And I think that there are very few backup quarterbacks in the NFL that are better than Drew Locke, in my opinion. Because you're talking about a guy that has started a lot of games. And he would be a lower level starter in the NFL. That's what he has shown. He's been inconsistent. But... I would have a lot more confidence in him, especially in his second year in this offense. I would have a lot more confidence in him coming in for a couple games to spell in a banged up Geno Smith than I would have in most of the backups that are around the NFL. And I think Holton Ehlers is a really intriguing undrafted guy that might be able to push Drew Locke at some point. Maybe not this year. If they bring back Locke next season and Ehlers is still around, I can see Ehlers giving him fits though in training camp because the guy has just been prolific at every level he's played at. So I really like the quarterback room that Seattle has. Ehlers, the rookie coming in, I've been the most excited about really since Trayvon Boykin, and unfortunately we know what happened there. But uh, in terms of talent and upside, this is a kid that I could see potentially making an NFL roster at some point as a backup quarterback because he does have some really intriguing physical tools. And another reason I have offensive tackle at number five on my list, I like Stone Forsythe as a backup. But that would be something where if he had to play more than a couple games, I would have some question marks about just because he hasn't been able to do it. And Jake Curhan basically is a guard at this point. So I'm wondering about the overall depth that they've got at that position compared to some of the other spots that they have. What you and I can agree on, and I think this is mostly because of uncertainty, the interior offensive line coming in at last. And in this offensive group, that's not necessarily a shot at this position group because there's just so much talent around the board. I do think the interior offensive line 
has a chance to be much better than last year's group. If Olu Oluwatimi comes in and builds off of being the Remington Award winner and he's a day one starter, you're already in better shape at center. If Evan Brown wins that job, he's only 26. He might still be a long-term guy there. So you've got two fun options there that I think are both going to be much better in the run-blocking department than Austin Blythe ever was. And then at the right guard position, Phil Haynes was the better player last year, and it wasn't close. I mean, Gabe Jackson was a shell of his former self, and that's why he has not been signed by anybody to this point. And I expect somebody will take a chance on him, but Phil Haynes was the better player last year, and yet – He's going to have to fight to the nail because I think Anthony Bradford's got starter potential early in his career too. So that position could be upgraded compared to a year ago and you would have a lot of upside for future seasons. So there's a lot to be excited about potentially there if the pieces fit, but there's uncertainty to it. And you can't really say that really about anywhere else in this offense. So by default, you're going to be dead last. Right. And again, it's not a shot. I, I think it's more the floor went higher. And like everyone kind of went up a little bit. And again, that wasn't a shot at quarterback either if I put it, put him fifth. So calm down, people. Um, that I, I am, uh, again, it, it's more, I really think this offense is one of the deeper in the entire NFL. And the interior line, yes, has question marks. I think the best case scenario, Olawa Timmy wins the center job. Evan Brown slides to guard somewhere and I, I maybe improves off what he was. You know, I know his numbers at guard aren't as great as he was as, as, as a center. Um, but uh, Olo Watimi, I'm a huge believer in this kid. I really like him. I, I was pumping my fist um, when, when the Seahawks took him, and you know, you've been, I've been, we both have been pounding the table for literally years for a center like Olo Watimi. So I'm hoping he he pulls through. So I can see a scenario where they they all improve, and you know, the interior is solidified, and they're still last in this position group, not because they're bad, just because the offense. You know, the Seahawks have a really darn good offense. Yeah, I have a feeling when we talk about the defense that the conversation will be a little bit different on next Friday's show because there might be a few more murky situations. But on offense, it's it's hard away from the uncertainty in the interior offensive line. It's really hard to find weaknesses in this offense, and that can make ranking position groups difficult. And so this was a good problem to have on the offensive side of the football. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Nick at Nick Lee 51. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Coming up on Monday, I'll be rejoined by Rob Rang. We'll be breaking down the receiver position. We might have to break this into two segments with all the talent that the Seahawks have at receiver, but we will have our latest training camp preview and we'll continue our 90-man countdown with numbers 35 through 31. Hope you'll be listening in. Enjoy your weekend. Go Hawks.